through God's Grace, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and fantastic sponsorship. I have been sober since the 20th of July, 1993. <laughs> <laughs> and that is not possible for an alcoholic like me. I really want to thank Tim and the committee uh, for having me. Um, some of you know uh, Clancy was supposed to be here. And, um, and then my sponsor was supposed to be here, both of whom I believe are going to be here next year. Um, so I'm trying to see. And I am really grateful that I have been given this opportunity because we have had such a good time. Um, normally I would um, be uh, wishing Clancy were here rather than me. Uh, because this is not my favorite thing to do, but, um, but I've had such a good time at this conference that I'm really glad you didn't make it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a high roundup. <clears throat> and it's funny because Julie and I did exactly the same thing uh, Katie was doing and Charlie got the plane. So I mean, um, Buckeye. What do you suppose that is? <laughs> and what we're thinking about it's a football team, so it must be like an animal. Right. So, so we were thinking maybe a deer with a bad eye or <laughs> But we never got to nut. <laughs> no, we never got there. Um, uh, but we've had a fantastic time with Shane and, and Tiffany. It was just, um, yeah. <laughs> Many of you know them, you, you can probably guess. Um, but Shane has been a fantastic host, and, uh, and it just makes everything so much easier. Uh, and of course, uh, to do with Charlie and Katie and Don Major last night, and uh, Grace did such a fantastic job. Uh, I really enjoyed Andy's, uh, we, were, we were getting a hard time before, um, before her workshop, so I'm really glad it came off well. Um, <laughs> I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I really feel like um, Cincinnati, I didn't expect it, but um, you really are my tribe. You're really not very well, are you? I mean, <laughs> it's fantastic, I feel at home, you know. Uh, but I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, let's see, I. Uh, uh, I'm a member of the Pacific Group in Los Angeles, California. Um, I, uh, I'm sponsored, and uh, my sponsor is sponsored, and I come from a program of action. Um, and if you're ever in Los Angeles, I, I welcome you to come to our meeting. Um, I believe it's one of the friendliest meetings in the world, and I certainly believe it's the best alcoholic synonymous meeting in the world. You do not have to believe that, but it really helps that I do. Um, <laughs> I am... I'm going to tell you uh, what it was like last night and what it's like now. And uh, I feel like um, a lot of the pressure has been lifted off me because between Katie, Charlie, Don, and Grace um, in their stories alone and, and Andy's uh, stuff, they've pretty much covered it all, right? So I just get to talk about me. Um, <laughs> I was born in London, which will save you wondering later on. Um, I grew up in a pub. Um, I really did. My grandparents owned the club, and I'm an only child and an only grandchild. And only children, like myself, are very good at entertaining ourselves. It's what we do best. 
So for me, my playground was the cellar, and I loved it. I mean, the bottles were my playthings. I had a thing about alcohol long before I ever drank it. I mean, I like the shapes of the bottles and the colors and the fancy labels. And I'd line the whiskey bottles up on one side and the vodka bottles up on the other. And I'd have the whiskey bottles chat to the vodka bottles. And they'd chat to me and I would chat to them. And, you know, vodka was the good guys and whiskey was the bad guys. And so, um, the only sad part about that is it was still happening in my 20s, you know. <laughs> I loved it. You know, I still love the smell of, of like, stale beer and bad cigarettes, you know, because I grew up with that. You know, but there's a motorway that goes out past Pasadena, California, and it goes right by the Miller Brewery. And we have to put the windows down for the smell of hops. You know, I love it. I just love that smell. And, um, <clears throat> So I grew up in this pub, and my granddad's pub was in uh, the shape of a U. And the two front, the two bars in the front were on the main road, with a little hallway between them. And as you went towards the back, there was a kitchen on the left, a long bar on the right, and then out to the car park. And we lived above the bars, and my bedroom was above the kitchen. And from the kitchen, from my bedroom, I could look straight down into the long bar. And the long bar is where life happened. You know, the other two bars, um, <coughs> there was one in the front called the front bar. <laughs> and um, <coughs> it was the kind of bar that old people drank in all day and, like, nursed a friend. And then the cocktail bar was the other one in the front, and people would go in at 5 o'clock after work, have maybe two, and go home. Now, I can tell you, even when I was little, Neither of those were attractive to me, you know. But the long bar was wild. I mean, from my bedroom window, I would watch it go on, and they'd have the discos and the pool tournaments and the dark tournaments, and fights would break out, and the police would come, and it'd be chaos. And from my bedroom window, it was magic. I was <laughs> like, it was better than Terry, you know. And, um, you know, I slept down one night, because they did this thing in uh, London at the time called Lock-In. And after hours, they would lock all the doors, and the regulars got to stay and drink until my granddad went to bed. And from my bedroom window, I would watch them, you know. And they would dim all the lights. And the only lights I could really see were the neon ones glowing through the optics, you know. And they'd turn the jukebox down, and they'd all sit around and drink and play cribbage. And I would watch them for hours. And one night, I slept down, and uh, my granddad flagged me in, and caught me on a bar stool, and he gave me a baby share. And at the time, it's like a sparkling wine. At the time, Baby Shan came in a little bottle, and he put it in a little glass, and I was a little person. And the logo for the Baby Shan was this cartoon deer that was sort of leaping, you know, like that. And, uh, and I had arrived. You know, I got to sit up with them, and I got to be one of the regulars. And to this day, I cannot tell you if I got drunk, if I liked the taste, if I got tipsy. I have no idea. It didn't matter. I got to be one of them, you know. And uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous describes me lovely, and it's around page 33. But it basically says it doesn't matter how much you drink or how often you drink, it's what happens when you drink. And that many of the really potential alcoholics often become the real thing in a relatively short amount of time, particularly true of women. And I am one of those women. You know, by 16, I had an ulcer. At 17, I got done for drunk driving. 
At 18, I had a heart attack, and six months later, I was in my first mental hospital. And that's when drink was worked on. It all went downhill after that. Over the next three years, I was in and out of five mental hospitals, and the longest I was ever out of a mental hospital was for two weeks. And in those two weeks, I was in the own flat, I had the curtains drawn, the answering machine on, a fridge full of um, Ostis Pomonti, vodka, and Nicola Light. I was always watching calories, you know. Um, <laughs> for two weeks, I did not see or speak to another human being, and I was happy. I have a clear memory of drinking a cold Nick Light in the shower, not knowing if it was day or night, not caring, and thinking it just doesn't get any better than this, you know. What happened was, I got a knock on the door one day, and it was my mom, my shrink, two policemen, and two nurses. They shot me in the arse with something, and they put me in a jacket with really long arms. And uh, I came to at the Institute for the Living in Hartford, Connecticut. And I thought I was on time to the camera, I'd been out or something. It seemed really surreal to me because I found out that I had been committed for a minimum of a year for being a danger to myself and others. I hadn't seen anybody for two weeks. <laughs> I couldn't figure out who the others were. <laughs> And anybody who's been in that place knows, places like that, knows that those people in those places are crazy. And I knew, I knew there was something wrong with me. I've always known there was something just a little off. You know, I don't think I've ever been a full ticket. I don't think I'm ever going to be a full ticket. And quite honestly, I do not believe there is a program in the world that will make me a full ticket. What I do know is that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the tools that allow me to act as if I'm a full ticket. <laughs> and I'm rubbing with that today, you know, but at the time, I knew there was something wrong and I knew they didn't know what it was. But I had this roommate, and it was really obvious what was wrong with her, right? I mean, she had rage attacks. One minute she'd be fine and she'd snap. She'd start punching out windows and going for nurses and be chaos. And I'd be sitting on the bed reading, you know, nothing going on here. <laughs> I am good. Because <laughs> they did this thing called wet hat. And uh, all these nurses would come in, they would wrap her in full wet sheets and puddle her away. And she'd be away for a long time. Now, she had something I didn't have, and that was friends locally. And her friends used to smuggle money in all the time. So our room always had money hidden in it. So when she'd get toggled away, I'd start thinking, right, because I'm a thinker. I'd start thinking, what a waste it is to leave all that money just sitting around, you know. So I used to go AWOL on her dime. And uh, first time I went AWOL, I ended up in downtown Hartford. I had $50 on me, and I had no clue what I was going to do. And this little fellow wandered up to me, and he said, do you want to buy a ticket to Prince? Now, I didn't know who Prince was. <laughs> I am truly an ACDC kind of girl. Right? So, but I'm thinking a dark auditorium, this may work. So I get these tickets, I smuggle in two bottles of vodka, I'm sitting in the nosebleed seats, and while he's in this little world for a great thing, I got absolutely legless, you know. <laughs> and uh, after the concert, 
I was wandering around Hartford and I ended up in this park and these winos, uh, maybe, were sitting around passing a bottle and I sat down with them. And they kept looking at me like stupid and crazy. But they let me drink with them and they didn't say a word at all. They just kept looking at me but they let me drink with them. As dawn came, the uh, white van with the blue letters pulled up, Institute for the Living. And I stood up and said, I gotta go, my rights here. <laughs> and, um, And of course, these fellows just looked at each other like, yep, crazy. <laughs> so I get back to the hospital and I have to build up my little trust points and anybody who's been institutionalized and I said, that. As my time was going on, you know, um, I wasn't going as far when I went AWOL. And one of the last times I went AWOL, I ended up in this pizza joint around the corner from the hospital. And when I went in, I thought, okay, hold on. This time, we're going to do this properly. We're going to do this like a lady. So I go in, I order a slice of pizza and two pictures of beer. I sit down in the booth, I start pouring it in the glass, because we're going to do this like a lady. And just as I got started, some of the nurses from my unit came in on their break. So now, I'm down in the booth with the picture up to my mouth, eating as much as I can before they see me. So my year was coming up and I had to go before a board of psychiatrists. And uh, my psychiatrist stood up and said, Hilda will never live in normal society. She is completely incapable. And his recommendation was that I did a minimum of another year. And it took me two and a half months to convince that board to let me out. So I did 14 and a half months in the end. And uh, in hindsight, he may have had a point. Um, I got out. I moved from Hartford to Hamden, which is just down the road, and uh, got a little job, and I met a fella. And this fella turned out to be a Coke dealer. Now, I didn't know that Coke would let you drink longer. Of course, those of you nodding, you did. I did not. Um, but I'll tell you what happened was I got this job of making $700 a week. In a very short amount of time, I had a coke habit of $1,500 a week. And when you do the math, it wasn't coming out terribly well. And uh, I ended up, I was sitting on the counter in my kitchen. I was drinking Nicolite at the time. And I remember looking out at my flat, realizing I had sold everything, including my curtains for coke. <laughs> and I thought, hello. If you're hanging out with people who will buy your curtains, we have a problem here. Do you know I'd never do coke again? In fact, I'd be in parties and people around me would be doing coke, and my head would go, remember the curtains. <laughs> now, I believe that's what makes me a real alcoholic, because far worse things happen to me drinking than it ever happened to me with coke. And never once did my head ever say, don't drink. What it might say is, get away from the red wine because it makes you cry. Don't drink the whiskey because it makes you mean. For my version of chapter three, switching from scotch to brandy or scotch to brandy. I mean, it never, it never actually said, don't drink, right? So I went to Hamden, I did drunk for drunk driving, drunk for disorderly, indecent exposure, and I, I never should have left England. 
I'm so much better in there. What was I thinking? So I moved back to England, and I wouldn't be in England very long, and I get down for drunk driving, drunk and disorderly, indecent exposure, and I think America was so much better. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> And that's really my thinking in a nutshell. It was always going to be better somewhere else. And everywhere I went, there I was. You know, um, I love that a friend of mine who always describes it as changing cabins on the Titanic. You know, the view changes, but the destination is the same. Um, and I have a long list of arrests for indecent exposure. And, uh, and now I don't look the type today. Maybe a little. <laughs> <laughs> Something happens when you add alcohol to my type of alcoholic. And I know I'm not alone in Alcoholics Anonymous because I have heard other women share. But as soon as you add alcohol to my type of alcoholic, for whatever reason, I just know that you have to see my tits. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tried everything for that not to be true. And I know that it's part of my alcoholism because I do not need, feel the need to show them to you right now. <laughs> so I'm back and forth and back and forth, and I'm back in England this time, and uh, I'm tending bar with my mate Andy. Andy and I have been great mates, um, known each other a long time, and him and I are, are tending bar together now. Andy's birthday was on uh, New Year's Eve, so we started drinking on Christmas Eve, as you do. And, um, you know, I've always been a blackout drinker. Charlie was talking about it earlier. I had assumed that when I had blacked out, I had passed out quietly somewhere. I found out on the 3rd of January that that is not true. I got woken up by the phone um, on the 3rd of January, and I was in my own flat, and I was starker's naked, the phone was ringing, and my head was bursting, and I was just a bad scene. And when I answered the phone, it was Andy, and he asked me if I was ready to pick out wings. I had no clue what he was talking about. And he said, no, 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 not this time. And he brought over a video, and I'm on this video, and I look great. I look great. I am not slurring my words. It's all the pubs we were in. All our friends were there. I'd drink and happen the whole time. My father was there. I'm watching the video, and Andy went down on one knee, and I thought, dear God, say no. <laughs> because I wasn't there. I had no recollection of it at all. And uh, it was the first time I realized that you didn't know that I didn't know that I wasn't there. You know? So, so I did what I did best, really. Um, I went to the pub, and I found a guy in the pub that knows everything. Right? There's this guy's in every bar all over the world. Don talked about him last night. I mean, he knows everything. You ask him what time it is, and he tells you how the pendulum clock works. You know? I mean, he truly is the most interesting man in the world. Right? <laughs> So I'm chatting away to him, and I tell him I'm engaged, and I don't know what to do, and, you know. And he said, did you know, if you volunteer on a kibbutz in Israel, they give you three meals a day, they do your laundry, and you get 50 quid a month. I thought it was old. Three days later, I'm in over spring, I got a visa, I'm going to Israel. Now, I'm a good Irish Catholic girl. This all made sense to me. <laughs> So I went to uh, Israel, I went for three months, I stayed nine, 
and uh, I came out of a blackout in a Timothy jail charge of drunk driving. And I didn't remember renting a car. And I can tell you that uh, really horrible things happen to young, vulnerable women who drink like I do in places like that. And uh, I ended up getting out on bail, and I jumped bail, and I went to Egypt. And uh, I ended up with the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time. And really horrible things happen to young, vulnerable women who drink like I do in places like that. And I ended up uh, getting dumped just near the American Embassy in Cairo with a tattered t-shirt on a beautiful pair of shorts and another thing to my name. And a big American Marine took pity on me. It was Ramadan and everything was shut, including the embassy. And uh, him and his mates looked off for me until the embassy opened. Now, I truly believe that a non-alcoholic woman who had been through what I had been through would probably never drink again. But I'm a goalpost drinker. I'm one of those drinkers that says if it gets bad, I move that goalpost back just a little bit. And if it gets worse, I move that goalpost back just a little bit more. You know, I got an emergency cost where I was on the plane not 20 minutes. I thought hell, they could have killed me. I was drunk when I landed. And I had no clue that it was alcoholism. I had no clue what was happening. And the whole 80s for me are a bit like um, the talking head song, Once in a Lifetime. And he goes, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. How did I get here? It's like we did a long blackout, but this is a bit of reality tossed in. As I got to the end of the 80s, I found out I was in a relationship that I had been in for quite a while. And uh, my partner was commenting on my drink, which I just thought was rude. So I didn't know what to do. Um, so I moved. I, uh, I moved in with my mom in Papillion, Nebraska. God's country. You know, I wasn't with my mom very long, and she started commenting on my drink. And I really didn't know what to do. And I thought about my uncle. Now, when I was 18, my uncle had tried to call Stephanie in a pub in St. Paul's. He was leaving on fire with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember him saying, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you need never drink again. I was 18. I thought, why the hell didn't I want to drink? But he was fine, so I let him talk, you know. Fast <laughs> forward, it's all gone horribly wrong. And I thought about him because he was still sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, my uncle was what I thought a really alcoholic was, right? My uncle went to prison. I only ever went to jail, right? My uncle went to detox centers. I only ever went to mental hospitals. So in my mind, he was what a real alcoholic was, and yet here he was still sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I thought I'd give it a go. So I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on New Year's Eve, 1989. I picked New Year's Eve because I truly believe no alcoholic would quit drinking on New Year's Eve. I know today only alcoholics mark the calendar. Non-alcoholics never pick a day to stop drinking. It's like virgins not going for pregnancy tests. Just doesn't happen. I didn't know that, so I toddled along on New Year's Eve. At this meeting in Papillion, Nebraska, it was a little meeting, and they were talking about Isa Calder and where the children, and I thought I was screwed. But I know that's not the answer. You know, Andy talked about it in her um, workshop. I mean, I've always been a seeker. So I knew that wasn't it. So I could hear nothing else in the meeting. And instead, I started taking everybody's inventory by their shoes. Because I can't look at you either. And the fellow next to me had the biggest pair of cowboy boots I had ever seen. 
And I remember thinking, I wonder if his IQ is any bigger than his big size. I mean, tearing these people to shreds. And also amazing, I made a beeline for my car, and this big dumb cowboy called me out. And he, he says to me, have you got a big book? <laughs> I said, of course I have a big book. Doesn't everybody have a big book? Now, I would have known a big book if you had beat me with it. But I couldn't tell him that. But without listening to beats, he went to his truck, and he gave me his big book. And I was stunned, because nobody had ever seen it through me like that. So I took his book, and speechless, I went to get in my car, and this little old woman went up to me and said, Did you know if you go to a law and you don't drink in between, you can't get it drunk?
started drinking on the Thursday, arrived in Germany on the Sunday, started doing a new job on the Monday, had lunch with my Friday on the Friday, and woke up in a wet bed next to my new boss on Saturday morning. That's my drinking. Glamour drinking. I've heard people stand at podiums and say, do you want to pick up where you left off, pick up a drink tomorrow? Absolutely not my experience. When I started drinking after not drinking, my drinking was ten times worse and more. My blackouts were longer. The people I woke up next to were uglier. better. <laughs> 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 <Whatever. laughs> it was not really <laughs> I drank like that for nine months. And uh, on the morning after what I hope is my last night before, I woke up in my own bed, which became bonus. Um, the bed was wet, and I was still dressed from work, and all of that is really normal for me now. But when I went into the bathroom, I realized my hose were all ripped, I had a great gash down my face, and there was blood everywhere, and I had no clue what had happened the night before. And I had that moment, and I heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about a hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. I think, God, you're so dramatic. <laughs> that morning, I knew who they were, and my heart broke. Not because I can't drink. I drink with the best one I can drink tonight. But that morning, I realized I had become unpredictable to me. Did not care when I was unpredictable to you. But that morning, I realized I'd become unpredictable to me, and my heart broke. And I did the only thing I knew what to do. I found English-speaking AA. I didn't know where else to go. So um, I called this uh, English-speaking AA, and I got this fellow called Steve Baker, who lets me break his identity. And I told Steve uh, my sad little story. Poor old me, then the AA screwed it up. Why, why, why? You know, he said something to me, I truly believe saved my life. He said, you know, those are the most natural thing in the world for an alcoholic to do is drink. And that's why an alcoholic's mom is no sugar wounded. And I believed him. It was the only reason why I went to a meeting that night is because I thought he understood. So I'm traveling into this meeting in Holmesburg, Holland. And I'm thinking about the meetings in California and Florida, the big speaker meetings, you know. So what I'm thinking is, I'm going to go sit in the back and um, slowly get a little bit of time and then tell you what happened. Right? But I don't want anybody to think I do. Right? I don't want anybody to think I don't know what's going on here. So, <clears throat> I walked into this meeting in Holmesburg, Holland. There are seven people in the room for an hour and a half. And nobody was letting me talk. Right? Because they're all, you know, shiny and new. And I'm all, you know, bloated and a vision for you. You know? <laughs> <laughs> So I told them I had an old story, and you know, after the meeting, they were looking for somebody to make the tea and coffee, and I was thinking, wow, I hope they found someone. That's <laughs> an important commitment. And this voice from across the room went, hell no, but what's that? This meeting was Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. I said to this woman, I have it, it's Tuesday night. I said, I didn't know if I'm going to be sober on Thursday. It seemed like a long time to me. Without missing a beat, she said, well, if you want to stay sober, you'll make a tea and coffee. I thought, who is this psycho woman? Why is she tormenting me? But my mouth went, oh, okay. I had no sight left. 
If you don't use Alcoholics Anonymous or in your first year, I hope you're tired. I hope you're willing. I would have done anything that woman suggested had that tried, because I just didn't know what else to do. You know, and I didn't know if it was a Thursday or a Saturday, but she pulled me aside one night and she said, you know, Hilda, you really should try and rent the meetings in 90 days. I said, do you see where we are? Hunsbrook, Holland. It is nowhere hang on left. She goes, oh no, I know where we are. So we had a meeting in uh, Dusseldorf on Friday night, the Kaiser Club on Wednesday, the Hall on Monday. I was like, Rrr. So I'm not driving all over God's acre for a meeting of alcoholics anonymous. Not happening. She goes, huh, how far did you drive for a drink? Which is so not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Because I am that drunk at two in the morning driving around for anything open. Right. So every Thursday I started tormenting my home group because uh, I had this thing about getting lost. Right? Anytime I got lost on the way to job interviews, weddings, it didn't matter. If I got lost, all bets were off. I would get a couple of bottles, find a B&B, and I'd be done. And uh, so I was afraid to get lost. So Thursday night I'd say, I'm going to do some work for a night. Does anybody want to go? The guy I hated the most. Hated. Always went, <laughs> like anybody but you. And every Friday, Mike would ride with me an hour and a half to do for an hour and a half meeting, for an hour's coffee afterwards, and an hour and a half strike home, and I wanted to kill him the entire time. I left skid marks on the autobahn where I pulled over to tell him to get out. <laughs> he had about eight years of sobriety at the time, and he was just love. <laughs> We're going to be late to get him to going. One of the things I'm really grateful of getting sober in that home group was that I learned principles before personalities. You have to when you hate your home group. <laughs> I, was, um, I was reading the literature one night, a bit like Don. I thought it was really poorly written. And um, I, I, to this day, I don't know what I was reading. But I couldn't sleep when I got sober. You know, every old time I would say, don't even I don't lack of sleep. I tell you, when you can't sleep, it feels like it, but never mind. Um, but I'm reading this thing at 2 in the morning or whatever, and uh, I didn't even know what it was, and I thought, I better call this woman. Sandy was her name, so what is it tormenting me? So I called Sandy, and I said, Sandy, I'm reading this thing in the book, and uh, I think I need a sponsor. Would you sponsor me? She goes, I have been, but thanks for making it official. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got my sponsor. <laughs> and uh, she, um, she had the patience of the saint, actually. Um, we went through the big book line by line uh, in her kitchen. And we were going through it one day, and uh, I was reading it, and I said to Sandy, I know what it says, but do you know what they mean? And before I could enlighten her, her book came across the kitchen and just missed my head. And I said, Jesus, Sandy, what are you doing? And she said, no. When you read the big book, not the Holy Tanners, just read the black bits. What they say is what they mean. There's nothing in between the lines. And of course, I'm a mumbler, right? So I'm like, I don't know. There might be more to it. <laughs> I don't know how she's going to kill me. <laughs> So I was about nine months sober, 
and uh, my company promoted me. They were moving me to Belgium. Belgium. It was like I played on the news. I didn't know people really lived there, you know. And uh, I went over to Sandy's, and I said to Sandy, go, I got a promotion. I'm moving me to Belgium. And she said, what's the problem? I said, well, I'm only nine months sober. I'm not supposed to have any major changes in the first year. She said, I'm really sorry, your company didn't get the memo. Pack <laughs> your bags. <laughs> so I moved to Belgium. And uh, I was miserable in Belgium. And, uh, you know, I went to where I tried to do bay therapy. I'm sure nobody in Cincinnati has ever done this. But duvet therapy is when you go to work, you get home, you get under the duvet, you get up the next day and hope it all changes. Um, I didn't drink, but <coughs> it was uh, dodgy. And so I finally, I was so done, I called Tanya, and I told her what was going on, and she said, look, Tilda, the uh, Brussels meeting is 20 minutes up the road. I want you to your happy little Lars left there. Blow the dust off your big book, and when you get there, I want you to share all this thing. I was like, whatever. So I go up to the Brussels meeting, and when I get there, um, their coffee was like sludge, and they had no literature. So when I shared, I told them so. And uh, afterwards, they gave me the literature commitment, and they took me to coffee. <laughs> and I learned how to put my hand out again. You know, they really saved me in Brussels. And, uh, I got the opportunity to move to London. I was about 14 months over, and I did it all different. I went over every weekend. Um, I had a home group before I moved. I had a service commitment waiting for me when I got there. People in AA helped me find a flat in London, and it all went really smooth. And I learned about doing something different for a different result. I had heard you talk about it, but I had never actually tried it. And uh, I didn't have to do duvet therapy. And, you know, my... Um, my sobriety hasn't really been textbook sobriety, but it has worked for me. Um, I was about two and a half years sober, and I went to a convention in Ireland. And I heard the speaker say, you can do absolutely anything in Alcoholics Anonymous if you're willing to pay the price and do the work. And I thought, huh. So I got back from the convention, I quit my job, <laughs> went on the door, started applying to universities. I was going to go into my helping profession. I was going to help people. Two and a half years sober, it never dawned on me that I don't like people enough to want to do that. <laughs> so, so I, was, uh, I was about four years sober. I got accepted to university. It's very hard to get into in London. And uh, I got my first tattoo and my first motorcycle. And uh, I was about four and a half years sober. I had a motorcycle accident. So I got a bigger bike and a bigger tattoo. And, uh, you know, I was sleeping along quite nicely in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I'm sponsoring people now. I'm being sponsored. And uh, life is good. Six and a half years sober, I was on my way out of the flat to go down to a convention in the south of England in the phone rang. And it was my mom. And my mom was calling from California. And she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, she asked me if I would come out to California in a couple of months when she was having these operations. Now, that may not seem like a huge deal to you, but it was massive to me because nobody in my family ever gave me bad news, right? Because anything bad happened, I went on a bender, so now I'm missing and they got bad news. So they just stopped telling me. And yet, every mom was asking me to come out to California. And, uh, 
went up to this convention that night, I signed in the line for registration, and this fellow didn't know me since I got sober, pulled me aside and said, would you share the midnight meeting? I said, you know, I'm really not up for it. And he goes, actually, how do you look like you need to share? What I didn't realize was that the outsides were starting to match me inside, so he could see that. And he said, look, WW there. The old timers meeting is going on at the same time. It'll be good for you. That's like fine, whatever. So I go to this meeting at midnight. There's 250 people in the room. <laughs> Six and a half years sober is the first time I ever cried in Alcoholics Anonymous when I shared about my mom. I had never cried. Back when you cried, I used to tap your knee, you know, sorry. I had no friend of reference, I had nothing. And then I cried when I shared about my mom. And something happened to me that night. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous touched me because a guy I barely knew stood up in the back of the room and offered me a flight to Los Angeles so I couldn't afford it. It was the first time I realized I was part of something bigger than a meeting, that I was part of a fellowship, and that I was in the middle of the bed. And you know, um, when the time came, I, I went out to California, and uh, I had spent my entire sobriety asking my sponsor, how do I make amends to my mother? I'm an only child. I tore her heart out. You know, my sponsor always says, if you're sitting here with us tonight, there are ten people sleeping better. Ten people digesting their dinner better, because you're here safe with us. My mother was one of the ten. You know, and uh, my sponsor kept saying, look, it's God's time, not yours. And when the time is right, you'll know. So once we had our operations, I came out, I made sure I was there when she woke up, and I was there when she went to sleep. And um, oddly enough, right, is it odd or is it God? Oddly enough, because of what I was doing at university, I got to take my mom home early and nurse her at home. And I was emptying her tubes one day, and my mom turned to me and said, I don't know how I'll ever repay you. My mom. I said, you don't get it. Six and a half years, I have waited for this moment. I get to be the daughter you deserved instead of the one you had. <laughs> you know, my mom and I have a great relationship today. And um, she's in remission. People always ask me afterwards. She's in remission. But we have a great relationship today. And I love that thing. Life is not measured by the number of breaths we take but by the moments that take our breath away. Because that's been my sobriety. It's not about the years. It's about those moments, you know. And um, in fact, for my mom's 60th birthday, she wanted to go back to Ireland. And uh, the sponsor I have now, uh, who I think over next year, um, the sponsor I have now said, um, just remember, Hilda, this is your mother's trip. I said, yeah, I know. She goes, no, really. So I take my mom back to Ireland for her 60th birthday, and she shows me where she went to school, and where she bought her sweets, and where she caught the bus, and I just wanted to shoot myself. <laughs> but whenever I wanted to make it about me, I went to a meeting about the others anonymous, and you reminded me that this was my mother's trip. You know, She's from Wicklow, and we were on Bray Mountain overlooking her little village, and my mom just turned to me and said, you turned into a lovely young woman. That's alcoholics anonymous, you know. Um, in August of uh, 2001, um, we were living in London, and my uh, company's head office was in New York. And uh, I used to go every quarter to New York, and I had a home group away from home. 
because I cannot afford to be anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I was back in August 2001, and I found out I was getting a promotion. I was going to be a god. And it was about time. <laughs> I knew they'd see my work one day, right? So uh, when I'm in New York, I always did um, work, hotel meeting, hotel work, hotel meeting. That's all I did. And uh, so I'm on my way to the meeting, and I call my partner, who's three months longer sober than I am, and will tell you so. Um, <laughs> I called uh, Julie, and I said, pack it up, Dave. We are moving to New York City. I'm going to your God. And she said, of course you are. Now, why do you call me off in the meeting? I'm like, this is, this is a big deal, right? So I go to the meeting, and uh, I'm a creature of habit, so I always sit in the same seat when I'm in town. So I sit in my seat, and I'm thinking about my office. And how I'm going to decorate it, and the view, and the view of important things. And this little fellow tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, hey, do you remember me? And I said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't. And then, why would I know this kid? I'm going to be a god. <laughs> and he tapped me on the shoulder again, and he said, you know, you shared at my very first meeting, I'll be your silver tonight. And it meant the world to this kid that I was in town on his anniversary. And I realized in that moment that it wasn't about the corner office. It wasn't about being a god. It was about being of service. Being of service in Alcoholics Anonymous, being of service to my family, being of service. And I turned down the promotion and I went back to London. And um, a few weeks later, the towers disappeared. And I got to be of service to my company. Because for 36 hours, we didn't leave the office. We took phone calls from people who just wanted somebody to know they were okay. I got to be of service because you taught me how. You know, 90% of our building went to the club to watch it on telly. You know, there was very few of us. And, you know, I would have never been able to do that without you. Um, I was about eight years sober and we moved out to California. And uh, Southern California changed my entire sobriety. You know, I was, uh, Chen and I were talking about this actually. I was in this, um, little meeting, and uh, they were doing a group conscience, and to this day, I don't know what it was about, but they were very passionate about it. Um, I was eight years sober, and they stopped the meeting, and they turned around, and they said, well, what do you think, Hilda? And I looked at them and said, if I want you to go, you're screwed. <laughs> so um, a friend of mine had kept inviting me to this um, Pacific group thing, and uh, I started going. And, um, you know, I'm in the bottom third of sobriety there, and I love it. You know, I need discipline. I'm just one of those drunks. I hate it, but I need it. You know, I need to know I need to be somewhere. And uh, a few years ago, I guess, um, I don't even know what it was now, um, 2008 maybe. Uh, we had to go back to Ireland. My partner had visa problems, so we had to go back to Ireland for a year. And uh, I, to be honest with you, did not get on well in Ireland. But I'm well trained in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I call my sponsor every day, and I call her every day from Ireland. She is always up to date with me. And uh, finally came in and said, look, Sharon, I don't know what to do. And she said, uh, I think you need to get on an epic plane. And I hung up the phone, and uh, my partner said, what did Sharon say? And I said, she told me to get on an epic plane. She said, can I give you a ride to the airport? Because we knew we'd work it out, right? 
I got back to um, Southern California. I was 15 and a half years sober, jobless, penniless, sleeping on my mom's floor. Not where I wanted to be at 15 and a half years of sobriety. And uh, I was getting a little low in myself, and uh, you know, I call my sponsor, and I can't get a job. And I said to Sharon, like, I, I'm just feeling terrible about all this. And Sharon goes, hang on a minute. Aren't you and your mom having dinner a couple of nights in the I said, well, yeah. She goes, and aren't you watching particular television shows together every week? I said, well, yeah. She goes, oh. Don't you think this might be a way to make amends to your mother by allowing her to be your mother? And she was right. Because my mom was never my mom. You know. And uh, I finally got a job, and my partner got into the country, and got better jobs, and bigger cars, and a nicer flat, and life was really going well. And in uh, March of 2012, the company I was working for was going under. I was going to be jobless again. So I called my mom, and I said, you know, mom, the company's going under. I'm going to be jobless again. And my mom went, you can come live with me. It took her 24 hours to realize I'd given her bad news. She told me the next day, oh, I'm really sorry about your job. <laughs> I was up for two jobs at the same time that March. Uh, one was with unmanned drones for the military, and the other was with the spirit of giving. Unmanned drones, spirit of giving. Now, if you've had more than a 10-minute conversation with me, you know I am an unmanned drones for the military kind of girl. My sponsor, who is next long wine drinking hippie, said, oh no, I think a spirit of giving would be good for you. So it's being a smart ass. Do not do this with your sponsor. It's being a smart ass and said, why don't we leave it to God? She goes, I think that's a fantastic idea. Let's leave it to God. So we decided that I would take whoever offered me the job first. Right? So the last two and a half years, I've been working for the spirit of giving. <laughs> we have slides from the second floor to the first and Barefoot Fridays. <laughs> it's been an adjustment. <laughs> you know, every, um, every April they do this thing called One Day Without Shoes to bring awareness to people who don't have shoes. Well, it's this kind of company, right? They do a lot of giving. And, uh, <laughs> so for 24 hours with this One Day Without Shoes, you have to go an entire day without wearing shoes from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. Um, I don't even own flip-flops, right? So I'm thinking, oh, yeah. So these, these gals I'm working with have this brilliant idea. They say, why don't you get a pedicure? And I've never had a pedicure. I didn't know anything about pedicures, right? So I sneak out at lunchtime uh, the day before, and I go into this um, main place, and I said to the girl, um, can I get a picture? And she goes, pick a color! I'm like, pick a color, pick a color, pick a color, right? So I end up with this fire engine red because I'm in a panic now, you know. So I'm sitting there and they're doing my toes, and this other girl starts putting my hands in things. I'm like, no, 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 just the toes, just the toes, just the toes. They're already doing that now. They're doing my fingers, okay, they're doing it, they're doing it, okay. We can do this. I 
comes out, like, comes out and says, would you like a massage? I'm like, no, stop touching me. <laughs> Just get the nails. <laughs> and I did this thing um, this entire day um, of not wearing shoes. And um, this year was my second year doing it. I'm getting a little better with the pedicure thing. But it's an adjustment, you know. And uh, every year in my company, on your year anniversary and every two years after, you go to a third world country and put shoes on kids' feet because that's what we do. And uh, last year I went to Honduras. And, uh, you know, I, I was unplugged for 10 days. Um, I literally got up and got on the van. I just saw the direction. And um, I can tell you that I had an experience that just cracked my heart open. You know, just a little bit. I didn't see it coming. I didn't expect it. And, you know, one day we were at the school in the, in the mountains with these kids that aren't even acknowledged by the government because they're Mayan descendants. And um, their schools have no electricity and no water, running water. And these are the happiest kids you've ever met. And when we were done, um, we looked across, and there was this little kid that had got his shoes, and he had his new shoes in his hands. He gave us a wave. I'm not that girl. I am not that gal. I don't do stuff like that. You know, talk about selfish and self-centered. I'm not that gal. And I think the most important thing is I would have missed it. I haven't found sponsorship. I would have missed it. This has been the best job I've probably ever had. You know, I can do what I do anywhere, but I get to be part of the force of good. You know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I did not qualify for the third tradition when I got here. I was not interested in not drinking. All I wanted to do was stay out of my friends and ugly people. <laughs> And I'm really grateful for my first sponsor who explained to me what Alcoholics Anonymous is and what it isn't. Alcoholics Anonymous is not high school. It is not about being popular. It's not about looking good. It's not about making friends. You know, it's not about stopping smoking or starting smoking or stopping swearing. It's not about any of that. Alcoholics Anonymous is about staying sober and trying to help somebody else do the same. One drunk talking to another drunk. You know, and it's funny because um, I went to talk at this meeting one night, and it's kind of an intense meeting. You know, it's, um, it's a set workshop they do every week, and they invite somebody to talk 40 to 45 minutes on one step. I mean, it's intense. And then they do questions and answers, right? So I'm going down, and I'm going to with me, and we're chatting all the way down, and I think I'm doing step 12. And I get to this meeting, and the, and the secretary goes, oh, well, I screwed up. I need you to do a recap of the 12 steps. I was like, that's not like, you know, no. No, we're going to do step 12 again. <laughs> so, I, so I ended up doing this thing that um, apparently is helpful to new people. And there's been a lot of talk about the steps this weekend. And if you are new, I hope that this helps simplify it and gets you interested enough to grab somebody who will help you read the book step by step, line by line, step by step. Because um, it's really just about the action, right? So step one is that you're powerless over alcohol in your life, so that's the next. Step two is you're going to be willing to come to believe in 
your life a mess and you're carrying some proud thoughts. Step three is you make a decision to turn your in your life. And what does that mean? It means your thoughts and your actions. Katie and Charlie did a great job about that. Step three, your thoughts and your actions. How do you do that? You do four through twelve. So you don't only do step three because you're coming to believe in something in step two because your life's a mess and your power is over alcohol. Step four, we do an inventory. You get to step three, you made the decision to turn the will in your life and your thoughts and your actions over. You're coming to believe in something bigger than you because your life's a mess and your power is over alcohol. In step five, you tell somebody else to get you a list of character defects from the inventory you did before because you made the decision in three to turn the will in your life and your thoughts and your actions over this power that you're coming to believe in too because your life's a mess and your power is over alcohol. In step six, you become willing to let go of those de defects that you got in the system fire from the inventory you didn't for because you made the decision in three to turn your will on your life and your thoughts and your actions over and you came to believe in something bigger than you because your life's invested in power is over alcohol. In seven, you start to change because you're willing to on that list in six that you got inside from the inventory you didn't for because you made the decision in three to turn your will on your life and your thoughts and your actions over to something bigger than you in two because your life's invested in power is over alcohol. And then you make a list of all persons you have harmed. Because now you've changed in seven, because you got a list in six, and you were willing to do the list in six, because you got the list in five, because you did the inventory in four, because you made the decision in three, to turn your thoughts and your life and thoughts. Living your life and your thoughts and your actions over something bigger than you in two, because your life's invested in power is over alcohol. And now you go out and make those amends to the list you made and made, because you changed in seven. Because you were willing to in six, because you got a list in five from the inventory you did before. Because in three, you made a decision to turn your life and your will and your thoughts and your actions over to something bigger than you that you learned about in two, because your life's invested in power is over alcohol. And in ten, you start to take your inventory and make it better, quicker. Because you've made the amends to those people in nine, to the list you made in eight, because you changed in seven from the list you got willing to in six, that you got in five, because you did the inventory in four, because you made the decision in three, because you want to turn your life and your will, your thoughts and your actions over to something bigger than you in step two, because your life's less and your power is over alcohol, and in step eleven, you start to get closer to God, because you're doing an inventory quicker and making a better process. Because you made the amends in nine from the list you got in eight, because you changed in seven from the willingness you got in six to the list you got in five, because you did the inventory in four, because in three you made a decision to turn your thoughts and your will and your life and your thoughts and your actions over to something bigger than you in ten, because your life's a mess and your power is over alcohol. And in step twelve, because they've all worked, you get to take somebody else through and do the same. I love alcoholics anonymous. I came to a lying bed with before, and today I have a good friend. <laughs> a lying anonymous wife and a true daughter to my mother, and for that I thank you. <laughs>